Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Regular listeners might have noticed that critical conversations about institutional racism have become a bit of a theme on my segments, and this week is no different. Today, you'll hear the first of two segments discussing issues of race and colonization within the field of social work, both in academia and in practice. In a piece for Indigenous X published on the 27th of August, 2020, Noongar social work academic Jacinta Krakauer stated that now is the time for critical race conversations in social work. Krakauer discussed the colonial origins of the field and a need for changes in the way that it is taught and researched, particularly in terms of disrupting the overwhelming whiteness of those in positions of authority in academia. Now that we're almost a year past that piece being published, I thought it would be useful to reflect with some social work students who are from marginalized backgrounds to talk about the state of the discipline and their experiences as students in social work. For this episode, I'm joined by Sin and Inez, both of whom are currently enrolled social work students at different universities and in different states in so-called Australia. Both Sin and Inez share their motivations for entering social work, experiences of studying, critiques, and hopes for transformation. This episode does include discussions of experiences of racism within academia, as well as mentions of the stolen generations and child removal. If this raises any issues for you, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can access them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're free to call. First off, you'll hear from Sin. Before we jump into this discussion, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself in a bit of detail and tell us why you decided to study social work in the first place. Yeah, okay. So I'm 41 years old and a mother of three. I am non-binary, use they, them pronouns. Our family has a history of family violence that we've been free from for eight years. And I had actually started my social work degree 11 years ago but it was interrupted by family violence. But my reasoning for entering into the social work field was having dealt with a lot of social workers in my personal life, I never felt safe with a lot of them culturally or being that I'm also queer, not safe in a queer way either. So it always kind of stuck out for me that I wanted to be in a helping field but I wanted to be different in the helping field. I I wanted to be what I needed when I was younger. So that's what got me into social work. It was actually a good friend that had said to me when I was thinking about going to university but couldn't settle on what degree I wanted to do. They said to me, you're already a social worker, just do the degree already. So yeah, that's how I got here. Tell us a little bit about the colonial history and you know the present you know colonialism within social work in so-called Australia, because there is a long and fraught history in the way that social work has been entangled with the colonial project. So from very early on in the colonisation of this land, white women in particular were very benevolent and imposing of white ways upon black people in ways that they were thinking they were being helpful, I guess. 
in a colonial way, but it's very damaging by taking children, by really reinforcing that black parenting wasn't ideal, that it wasn't suitable, and that they could do a much better job of taking the black away from these kids. So there's really strong white supremacist colonial roots in social work and the helping fields, whether it's in health or education. They're all quite rooted in uh, quite colonial thinking of the white way is the only way and it's done a lot of damage. So I guess what I see in the educational setting of a university is firstly, one of the things that stands out most to me is the lack of black faces teaching in classrooms and the lack of black faces in the student body in social work as well. There's a lot of scepticism in our communities about social workers. I guess like a lot of black fellas, some of us enter that field to try and change it from the inside. I mean, I want to change it, but I don't want to keep it, if that makes sense. I want to destroy it and let's imagine something better. One way that we can shift that in institutions like universities, in courses like social work, in diversifying the teaching pool, that sometimes we're really lucky and we do get teachers from diverse backgrounds. But, for example, I in my first year of my degree, I had to do a unit on working with cultural differences. And the unit coordinator was a white guy. And I actually complained to the university about the lack of diversity in the teaching staff for that unit because it was working with cultural differences, but they were so limited in their own cultural understandings that I don't think they could do a good job in actually teaching what needed to be taught. The unit coordinator was a gay man, and the week that we had to study Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, every single item that he showed us was about queer black people, nothing about strong black women or other systemic issues that face black communities, but it was all just about gay black people because being gay was what he could relate to. And while I think it's great because we need to know about that, hey, yes, we have queer people in our communities, but um, I am one of them. I just felt that it was so lacking in depth of information about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and what it is that we've endured for the last 230 years and just how important black women are in making change in our communities. Yeah. You know, what you said there also speaks to the idea that colonization is something that can be siloed to a particular week in the curriculum rather than informing the entire course. Yeah, like I brought up with the university, I said what would have been good is if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander information was weaved through each week's topics. Yes, have a week where it's just on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, giving a background as to why there may be struggles happening today that stem from 230 years ago and what's happened every day in the colony for the last 233 years or whatever it's been. There's a lot we can talk about when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and homelessness and disability and domestic violence 
and all of the issues that we covered through the units that I've done, that it, it's just been very lacking. For instance, our family violence unit, we only had one week where we talked about family violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence for Aboriginal women and children. And that's a much bigger conversation than one week can offer. This is really important. I think I was also wondering about the extent to which, you know, social workers' own positionalities are interrogated as a part of the studies that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. So I I have one example. Of course, it's processed now that at the start of each tutorial, an acknowledgement of country is done. And I have brought up with all of my teachers and emailed all of my unit coordinators in regards to the use of emerging elder in the acknowledgement. And I've had some very, like, white responses. I had one teacher say to me, oh, yeah, but other Aboriginal people have told me that you can use that. And I said, yeah, well, I'm giving you new information here. But that's something that's only been introduced as a governmental thing in the 90s, early 2000s. And it's not actual Aboriginal protocol to honour emerging elders. So please look into that and stop using it. But they'll disregard what I have to say and flippantly say, oh, but other Aboriginal people, as a way to reject the information that I'm giving them. That's a very common thing that happens to me. It sounds like there is this intersection between the power imbalance of being a First Nations person in a predominantly white classroom, but also the power imbalances that already exist between students and instructors where there's only the possibility for a one-way transfer of information. I actually shared an email exchange with one of my tutors where I had spoken up in class about something And he sent me an email thanking me for playing out intergenerational trauma in real time for the class. I said to him, hey, don't ever send an Aboriginal student a thank you for playing out your intergenerational trauma in real time for the class because that wasn't what I was doing. I'm talking to you about my experiences. That's not, I I can't even find the words for it. Um, No, it's just... It's just so inappropriate. It was very inappropriate. And I just said, like, just don't do that ever again. Yeah, it becomes you having to educate in that space, you know, being forced to educate. Or even when you are sharing, then it gets turned into a pedagogical tool. Oh, yeah. And always, oh, Sin, you're Aboriginal. What do you think about this? Oh, Sin, what do your communities do when this happens? And it's like... There are Aboriginal academics and other Aboriginal people that have written extensively about these things. You would do well to go and read them. Go and learn from people that I'm learning from about things that can help me get understanding about what it is that I'm experiencing that I can't find the words for. Part of, I guess, working with marginalised groups is understanding that life looks very different for different people. And sometimes social work has a very much one-size-fits-all approach because of the bureaucracy and there's so much paperwork that you have to do and report writing. And, and look, report writing is really important. It helps to build a story about what's happening for people. But 
there's a lot of stuff that really takes time from a social worker's ability to get in there and make real change in people's lives. The field I'd like to get into, I would like to help keep incarcerated women connected with their children. I feel like there's a lack of services available. So I want to work with women in prison and obviously gender non-conforming people, helping to maintain familial relationships. I see the damage that incarcerating mothers does to whole families long after they're let out of prison and the support networks aren't there to support those families in rebuilding relationships, in undoing some of the damage that's been done. And a lot of these families are left to flail. Then child protection enter the picture and more trouble starts and it just becomes a cycle like a ball rolling down a hill collecting stuff, you know. We need to start putting supports in place before we even consider carceral sentences for people. I mean, I don't think carceral sentences should exist, but obviously in the world that we live in, they do. But there's so much that I think needs to be taken into account when we decide to put people in prison. Like, what are the long-term effects of incarcerating this person on their children, you know? What structural transformation might look like is having stronger communities that can address harm without causing more harm. So having secure housing for people, having ideally a universal income so that everyone has their financial needs met so that they can afford food, they can afford to pay their bills, they can afford to pay rent, They can afford to do social things with their families and have a well-rounded existence. You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station. You just heard a conversation with Sin, who's been discussing their experiences as a social work student, issues with the discipline, and their motivations for engaging. Next up, I'm joined by Inez, who's currently undertaking a Master's of Social Work and who will also be speaking about her experiences and how they relate to the discipline's stated values, as outlined in the Australian Association of Social Workers' Code of Ethics. I'm Inez. I am currently a Master's of Social Work student, and I'm also a DJ and a podcaster. I have had quite a significant living experience interacting with services and institutions, and I think I always wanted to lead in towards something like human rights law and I started doing a diploma of justice and I was really set on being a lawyer but my teacher had pulled me aside and they said I think your uh, personality and your value system would align closely with social work so I ended up giving that a go and the more I read about it the more it intrigued me and I just thought it was a really fulfilling way to yeah support people as well as living a a value-based profession. Yeah, absolutely. The Australian Association of Social Workers does have a code of ethics. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the key principles in the code and how they're meant to inform social work education and practice and maybe how they speak to some of your own values. Yeah, of course. Well, the ethical principles of the Australian Association of Social Work Code of Ethics is respect for persons, social justice and professional integrity. So respect for persons mainly means making sure that you acknowledge people's dignity, their autonomy, and respect for their human rights as well. And social justice, (laughs) more importantly, is also about 
upholding social justice values and also working to change systems that currently oppress and continue to cause inequity. And lastly, there's also professional integrity, which also is about supporting your own self-awareness, being transparent and being accountable and also lifelong learning. And I think in principle, social workers are supposed to uphold to these values, but quite often I think these things end up falling through the cracks. They're excellent ideals to, to try and adhere to. And obviously, you know, people slip up, but we're talking more about systemic kind of concerns about the way that these values might not always be matched in practice and also in the teaching and education sphere. So I was wondering if you could speak to some of your own experiences as a South Asian social work student. Yeah, well, I actually naively thought that most of the classroom would be quite radical and upheld social justice values in a way that I probably wouldn't have interacted with before. Uh, quite a shock to my system when I did interact with lecturers and students and just the entire institution. And it's been incredibly difficult. And quite honestly, it's had a huge impact on my mental health. It's been a huge barrier to education where quite often I am sometimes the only person of colour in classrooms. And some of the experiences I've had have been just quite shocking. <laughs> I've had students who have vilified me and bullied me in class and said that I have never experienced discrimination when I was trying to advocate for better placement practices and basically say that, like, you've never experienced discrimination because you're educated and you don't have an accent. And the real racism they see is from people who are actually from India. Really, when the essence of that conversation was, how do we make sure that placement is accessible for people? And how do we make sure that if discrimination occurs at placement, discrimination can be anything, you know, sexual harassment, racism, sexism, ableism, all of these things can occur at placement. And I was not given a single answer as to what to do to be able to support students. And also the fact that you have to go on placement for six months in total, and you have to do that unpaid, which is completely unfeasible, knowing that a lot of the people that go into social work will likely have impact to the social determinants of health. Not everybody can go live with their parents and save up a bunch of money. A lot of the people have kids and have mental health concerns or need to work or be carers. And all I was trying to do was make sure that we could have a more accessible placement. And I was completely vilified for asking those questions. When I brought up, like, what do we do if discrimination occurs? All the lecturers, who are all white women, all said to me, that won't happen. That won't happen in placement, which I think is just unbelievably shocking. You know, you discussed the code of ethics, but there's a need for critical reflexivity in, in both teaching and also in practice. And I was wondering if you could speak to, to the role of reflexivity in the classroom. I think the concern is with social work. It was built upon discussing foundations in Australia. And social workers were front of line in the stolen generation, which is still happening to this day. And there are many instances where we are not taught enough about that. There is not enough accountability. When people like myself in the classroom have critiqued child protection, there has been a lot of defensiveness and a lot of lecturers are also child protection practitioners. So what's frustrating is that the lecturers are in a system that doesn't need reform. It is set up to oppress and we need alternatives that promote self-determination and community and harm reduction collaboration, transformative justice. 
I wrote a abolitionist child protection paper because I think what's important to recognize is a lot of the time in child protection, I understand it's a very difficult job, but predominantly it is a white woman role <laughs> that is also working with incredibly marginalized and vulnerable communities. And actually they're historically excluded. And quite often the umbrella term is neglect. Anything can be neglect. Neglect can be you want to get a second opinion for your child and go to a different doctor. Those systems and that power imbalance is completely inappropriate to set up and support parents. And I wrote a long paper about this. And basically what was told to me was there's a lot of systems, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of sexism and ableism outside of child protection. So of course they're going to infiltrate the child protection system. And until those things aren't addressed outside, what can child protection do? And then at the end, it was like, I hope you retain the fire that you have to still make a difference, which is so patronizing. And I think I also want to highlight, I think a lot of people in helping professions and social justice professions, but particularly radical and critical social work students, is that I never considered myself an advocate or an activist my entire life until I was routinely put into white institutions and white spaces where I would be standing up or trying to support social justice values, which the Code of Ethics literally says that we're supposed to do. And everyone has said, oh, you're so radical, or you're an activist. And that's not the label that I think fits for me. And realistically, an entire cohort of students should be activists and should be aligning with social justice values and committed to lifelong learning and transparency and accountability. But it's just not... It's just not there. I think it just speaks to the lack of diversity in teaching staff, the lack of diversity in the students, and also just the lack of diversity in the readings. There are hardly any diverse readings, number one, and a lot of the really important cultural topics are being taught by white people. And I don't think that diversity and equity shouldn't be throughout the entire degree because what happens is that you have one diversity subject and then you have like, okay, this week we talk about disabilities and next week we speak about migrants. Why is that not integrated throughout an entire course? I think it, that's just completely baffling to me. It speaks to a resistance to change within disciplines where students are coming in wanting change and wanting to make that change or at least, you know, a group of students like yourself and like Sin are interested in making that change. And you see the value of working in particular areas and there's work that you want to do, but without institutional support and institutional buy-in to, to upholding these values, you're sticking your neck out without protection. I think what's frustrating is that even if you are, I don't know, the, <laughs> the unappointed cultural educator or the unappointed activist, when we never assigned ourselves to those roles. We do so much informal teaching in the classroom. And I think that that just takes a toll on you because you want to bring in diverse readings or you want to bring in a nuanced conversation and you are just labeled as like the angry brown woman or the radical advocate whose views are too idealistic. And, you know, even with abolition, I have tried to have these conversations in the classroom and I've been laughed at. And when you go back to the actual code of ethics, it is about advocating change to social systems and structures that preserve inequalities and injustices. And to not be able to have that kind of conversation and say, like, abolition is the only way forward and social work needs to be a part of that change. But, like, how can it be when the system is built upon is white supremacy and oppression? It gets harder and harder because nobody ever really seems to want to 
reflect on themselves. I've had lecturers who have been incredibly racist to me or I have brought forward, like, I think this student is racist or I think that they will cause harm as a social worker. And it's not that I want the student to be kicked out or anything. I just want a conversation to be had. Do I have to have that conversation? Not necessarily. But routinely, it's just like, oh, but you can move classes. And I don't think that that's an appropriate form of wanting to better educate because I think it should be a collaborative process. The onus shouldn't consistently be on historically excluded students to do all that informal educating and for lecturers to get defensive when this should be a profession built upon critical reflection and so should that classroom. If you are consistently hit with cement ceilings or complaints aren't replied to, if that goes on for four years, part of me is just like, what is the point of this? Like, I'm going to be met with these same issues on the outside. And I think that it just becomes really disheartening, you know? Yeah. What you've spoken about happening in the classroom and happening within the educational sphere definitely has implications for the kind of social workers that are going to then leave these classrooms and enter the world, or even when they're still students in their own placement. And yet, right now, particularly as the pandemic has hit and we're moving into a new quote-unquote COVID normal, we've seen the demand for many social work services, especially mental health social workers, Mm -hmm. explode. And I'm wondering how you grapple with the need to transform social work as it currently stands from its fraught origins into something that is genuinely emancipatory and that is something anti-racist. I think the main thing is that we need to move away from paternalistic practices. There needs to be a focus on community and harm reduction and self-determination and collaboration. I think what's hard for me as somebody who is an abolitionist is transformative justice is an area that I'm really, really interested in. But how are you meant to be an agent of the state and still be respectful and understand your power balance and use that to support and not talk over people and be a voice for the voiceless? Because we don't need to do that. Everybody has a voice. What we really need to do is just support people and pass the mic. I think when I do speak about these things, people feel that it's too idealistic. But if the entirety of the social work profession is built upon these code of ethics, all I've been doing for the entire time has been adhering to these code of ethics. I believe in social work. I believe in the principles and the promotion of social justice. I just think that there are definitely better ways to be doing that. And we need to be in community with each other and really hold each other accountable to be able to do that. That was a conversation with Masters of Social Work student Inez. And before the break, you heard from social work student Sin. Both Sin and Inez share their motivations for entering social work, their experiences of studying, and their critiques and hopes for change in the field. Just a reminder that if any themes discussed in today's episode caused you distress, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kabara, and Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.